Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. A blue Yeti, black clothes, space cadet, and credibility as a designer. I have none of these things, but the two gentlemen that I'm about to have a conversation with certainly do. Mon Q is a supremely interesting person here in the glorious city of Melbourne who's really making a name for himself and for his organisation, United Make, in embodying all of the graduate outcomes of a school for tomorrow. Mon is a good person. He is a future builder. He is a continuous learner and unlearner. He is a solution architect, a responsible citizen, a team creator. Adriano De Prado, I can't wait. I'm excited. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 7 sponsor? Thanks, Adriano. Of course I can. We are proud to be partnered with EDAPT Education. EDAPT Education helps schools from around Australia bring together their academic engagement, wellbeing, intervention and student voice data onto one platform. Let your data work for you to improve the academic growth and wellbeing of all students in your school. For training and support to help you get started, visit www.edapt.education. That's www.edapt.education. Let's go. I'm super, super excited for our conversation today, Phil. Before we get to our wonderful guest, my fellow space cadet, Phil, how is the Democratic Republic of Fitzroy treating you today? Do you know, I have to say, Adriano, that I went outside today Mm -hmm. and there was a little delegation of quinoa plants looking at me to say, you haven't been paying enough attention. You haven't been showing enough love lately because, of course, it's the start of lockdown and I'm not allowed outside the house. You know they have a union with tofu, don't you? They've they've joined a union together, tofu and quinoa uh, and kale. They've all come together. They've joined a union. You've got to be careful, mate. You've got to be nice to them. Uh, the, the, the amalgamated hipster food product union. I can't imagine anything. It'll be organic. Well, let's get to our very first guest. I'm super excited to have Mon Q on Game Changers. A person I first encountered a number of years ago at Space and has have continued to follow his remarkable journey in the space of design and iteration and, and ideas and animation and teaching and learning. And uh, every time uh, I see a post, I learn something new, my friend. But we're going to launch directly into our very first question that we ask all of our Game Changers guests. And that is, can you tell us your own story? How have you gotten to where you are today? Well, thanks, Adriano and Phil for having me on Game Changers. I feel very honoured. My story starts by a young little boy uh, with a migrant family from China. They came in Australia to study and learn, both uh, interior designers and I was born in the suburban outskirts of Melbourne. And I think growing up, I always had this challenge of speaking two languages, having to have two different cultures or three different cultures um, surrounded me. And I was actually very late to speak. And I think I learned a lot of empathy through actions and learning from what people did rather than actually speaking. And as I grew up, I think one of the things that really got to me and one of the things that my parents really instilled me is this really 
really tenacious, I guess, ability to work hard <laughs> and uh, ability to actually understand people. So as I grew up, of course, you know, went to private schools, did all the things, uh, got to 18 and realized that I was heading for one route in my life mm -hmm. that I felt like was just box ticking. And I completely flipped it on its head. So at university, I sort of left, uh, went to a university in London, and then basically uh, started my own practice. Uh, and I currently now run a design studio. I teach and direct a visiting school in architecture. And I also run a bespoke furniture company here in Melbourne. So I guess my story a little bit is multicultural background. <laughs> Uh, that I guess is has a curiosity of how to bring people together and created a life that I want to live mm -hmm. rather than one that I think society sometimes expects of you. It's, it's really interesting listening to, to your story because so much about what you're sharing with us today is around the exploration of self from a deep consciousness of your cultural background, but then then the new place that you you call home, you know, and and the merging of these two worlds and the contrasts of those kind of two worlds. When 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 was that moment though for you when you determined that design was going to be a pathway to help you articulate not only your heritage, your important heritage, but also what you're passionate about? I definitely think in the first year that I was in London. Mm -hmm. The ability um, of understanding that design is a way of thinking about the future. Mm -hmm. And one of the issues that I find that a lot of industries is that you always live in the past. And to actually make true change is you have to have one foot in the past, but also looking in the future. And I guess the, the reason why, you know, I, I also did the Asian three. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but I also mixed that up with music and VizCom. So oh. I had this really interesting balance that not only was I a bit of a polymath in different ways of thinking, mm -hmm. um, but also the different types of people that you meet in different subjects that have different interests in. And I think that variety of people and that way of, you know, you have your clicks with different social groups sometimes, um, but that diversity helped me to make my own decisions. And, and then basically, as I expanded my network in Melbourne, uh, when I went to London, it was this whole new world of meeting all these different people from all around the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that one thing that really enlightened me in life was that the projects that we make doesn't necessarily have to be in the same type of industry that you do. For example, I studied architecture. So you assume that all my solutions that I come up is buildings. Mm -hmm. However, a building is not always the answer to problems. And I feel as though that you know, once you have a project, you have to think about the best solutions to challenge that problem. And sometimes in our lives, you know, once we're trained in a certain industry, we'll fight for that. But sometimes it's good to let go. And for me in this space, I really believe that that opening and revelation of understanding the world more mm -hmm. gave me agency to actually have more courage to stand up for what I believed in. And I think being able to, I guess, travel the world and see all these different aspects has definitely, you know, been part of the journey. And that I think in London was one of those moments that I actually created that allowed me to really believe in what I do. 
Mond, I'm really interested in hearing about the way in which you go about processes and make decisions. At the School for Tomorrow, we have a 5D process because why settle with four Ds when you can have five? We talk <laughs> about discovering and diagnosing, then deciding, then designing, then deploying. That's that sort of been hardwired into um, a lot of the processes that we use to help design what we would call a knowledge architecture, which is that sort of arrangement of concepts and ideas that can provide the vision and vocabulary that can then fuel the development of innovation and thinking and education that achieves better outcomes for more learners. All of that, you know, for us, that's really important. When I, when I, when I look at what you guys have been doing at United Make and I, I look at your process around dream and prepare and develop and design, similar sorts of things. What I'm interested in is how do you make decisions? It really depends on the project and depending on what's actually in the mix of the data that we receive. We have this thing called layers in design and this sort of process that we go through that we not only look at one variable of the picture, but we looked at how do we actually challenge it socially? How do we look at it culturally? How do we look at environmentally? How do we actually look at it functionally? And how do we look at it aesthetically? So these different types of layers that we go through just means that we're sort of a bit more aware of the things that we're putting out in the world, that it isn't very narrow. And as that list goes on, it really depends on where you're placing these projects because, you know, things have to be quite vernacular, has to be quite site specific, has to be aware that, you know, we're not just randomly putting things out there in the world without these considerations. And I think the, the best thing for us to do as designers is also just question and make sure that every time we do something, we're learning something. And this design process always happens when there's more than one person in the room right? It's always that dialogue that needs to happen. So for example, if we're going to design something in Tasmania or design something in China, we definitely have to have that local energy, that local opinion about things, because we're not a colonialist person that goes over like, this is what we think and you're going to stick with it. It's always that conversation and it always makes the project richer, but also it's that dialogue, right? It's that idea that, well, have we considered everything environmentally? Have we considered everything culturally with an aspect? And then trying to make the best decision with the resources that we're given with. You know, it's really interesting listening to the way in which you just described that particular process from Phil's question. You know, Phil, just listening to Mond right then, it's fascinating to see, to hear how he went from a position of research extensive research in understanding context, understanding the nuance and understanding all the kind of situational implications for a particular job. So there's a deep consciousness there. And then he moved to the position of inclusion, a, a position where it's not just about us telling someone then what the solution is. It's about inviting people around the campfire and, in, and be a part of you know, the next iteration stage of this design process. You touched upon a word early on in, in the conversation. You used the word empathy. And, and for those in, in a school setting and many schools who would follow the kind of de-school model of, of design thinking, that's the first step of that deep tuning in or deep listening component and, and a deep understanding. Can you maybe describe to our listeners, most who are which are educators, what does that, that moment look like when you are having that deep consciousness and listening to really understand all the elements of a particular project that's about to commence. One of the things that I always do when we're doing empathy research is that you really have to listen. 
<laughs> it's 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 not having your cognitive biases because mm-hmm. sometimes you're trying to listen for what you want to hear right especially as a designer because you always jump to solutions we're always notorious for this you always have a solution in mind and you're trying to prove that solution by just putting those words sometimes in their mouth so there's something that i call empathy where you put um where you listen to people the other form of empathy that we do is you put yourself in the same scenario as them. So, for example, we did a design for a quite high-end patisserie chef. Mm-hmm. And this was back in the day when we were just scrambling to get work. And I remember we got this competition. We were so excited, but we've never actually designed a kiosk before. We've never actually designed a macaron stall before. And as, you know energetic designers you come up with all these fanciful forms all these like like avant-garde ideas and then there was one point where i was like is this actually helping the people that are going to be working there and serving them so that flipped my thinking and i actually asked um the chef that can i work for you for a week so i actually went into one of their uh, patisserie sort of kiosks in sydney and I worked there for a week and that was really a enlightening experience. So basically if I could maybe draw you a sort of picture, uh, it was an octagon shaped kiosk. Yeah, this mm-hmm. is an octagon shaped kiosk and each side of this octagon was different types of uh, sort of foods. So you have the croissants, you have the macarons, you have the cakes and it's a very small kiosk. and by lunchtime, usually there was only one or two people, the crowd would get so confused on where to stand that they would just stand next to the things they wanted. Right. As a worker there, you were so confused and so lost and you didn't know who was first. Mm-hmm. And it was so small that one of the requirements was, was that because they sold like 5,000 macarons a day, mm-hmm. they had to hire different aspects of the shopping center to actually sort of fit it in and coming back with this new knowledge we actually designed and redesigned a sort of media wall where we could store the 5,000 macarons but also have a really clear demarcation of what was needed and how it would work and make it seamless through that process and through that process i think that was their best performing kiosk in the whole of australia uh, the question I have for you is how we how were your macaroons though? <laughs> Luckily, I didn't make any. <laughs> Fortunately for the customers, is that what you're saying? Sorry, Phil, Absolutely. over to you. Yeah, no, look, I'd look. Yeah, macaroons all fine and well, but you know, could could you could you do sausage rolls there? That's what I really want to know. Um, um, I'd, I'd love hearing you, you talk about the, the the way in which you engage with the whole of learning associated with with a project or a problem there. One of our earlier guests on uh, The Game Changers, I think in series one, um, Adriana Conrad Wolfram, talks about mass curriculum in a way that's very, very different. He, and he, he says that instead of getting kids to do sums, you need them to engage with real and gnarly computation about significant problems um, and challenges that exist in the world. Because mm-hmm. there's no point getting them to do something that a calculator or a watch or a phone could can, can do. Why well, teach them to learn to do that sort of thing? It's a little bit like going into a history classroom and teaching facts and dates. It's pointless. 
absolutely pointless colleagues out there, history teachers, don't teach facts and dates, teach agency, teach causation, teach relative merit and teach narrative. That's what we exist for. So Mm. if we look at what you're living at the moment and then begin to extrapolate that into a learning context in a school and the Mm. community of inquiry and practice that sits around it, we believe that a learning framework that enhances student creativity and critical thinking communication, collaboration, and problem solving, just like your kiosk exemplar there, leads to deep and powerful solutions in learning. How do you think learning communities can leverage the power and effective use of design thinking like your kiosk project um, or, or any other projects you're engaged in to enhance not only students' creativity and critical thinking per se, mm. but also the relevance of what they're doing and their overall wellness and character. That's a that's a small question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Casual question for the afternoon. <laughs> I think number one is attitude and interest, right? I, I, I'm, a, I'm an educator as well, and I teach um, design thinking. I also direct a visiting school. And one of the things that I think separates people that do really well that I engage is actually the interest level. Are they actually interested in the topic that you're talking about or they're not? Because if they're not, then that, that's where, you know, I think it's not about the topic per se, but it's about the person. So I when, I, when I was teaching, I actually flipped the script a bit. So one of the sort of architecture studios that I taught, none of them was a building. <laughs> it was all about different ways of thinking about the narrative and thinking about how to come up with different ways of framing problems or bringing awareness to things. And rather than giving the project of, okay, design me an airport, design me a hospital like well what are your interests what do you want to do you know like like outside these walls of an institution think of this as a pit stop for what you want to do rather than doing all these tick boxing and then coming out of university and starting all over again and thinking oh okay what do I do now and one of the things that I learned is that everyone actually has a lot of different interests you know one of them actually really enjoyed cryptocurrency you know one of them really enjoyed this idea of, you know, how can we inhabit Mars, right? Mm-hmm. And another one was like, oh, I'm really fascinated by the creation of color. Mm-hmm. So what I encouraged them to do was, well, let's learn about it. Let's have this obsession about it. Let's actually go in deep about it. So we came up with this film back then and six years ago about, well, how does cryptocurrency work? What is the fundamental basis of how does it actually, you know, um, you know penetrate society? And we made up a speculative project of, well, where can this go? And the funny thing is, is that, you know, the, the, the girl who loved Mars actually um, dreamt of a project that will should, you know, nuke Mars to re- react the core. And then two years later, Elon Musk tweeted about it. We also designed, you know, this idea that Facebook will come up with its own cryptocurrency, which they did. <laughs> so in, in this way, that curiosity and that engagement with the human and the person is the way that we should start treating education because the current system that we've got going on only works for specific type of people, you know? And it's only one way of, you know, I guess, assigning value. Whereas there's so many different ways of understanding how people work and tick. And, you know, we are not robots, we're not machines. And there's not just one way of doing things. And that that value and also that way of empathy towards a human being, that's a project. 
Okay, so I want to follow you up and just push you a little a little stronger on this sort of sure. stuff. I'm, I'm really enjoying listening to what you're talking about. There's, there's just uh, talk about layers, as you did earlier. There's so many layers of uh, of of interesting process all around a, a journey towards self determination. A traditional schooling system conducts what I believe is an immoral process of sorting out which kids are going to have privilege and which aren't. And it uses examination processes to do that. Mm. So what happens is that at a certain place and a certain time, you are tested. If you pass the test, you get to go on and enjoy the rewards for that. Others don't. I just, I, I, I've, I've more than fallen out of love with examinations. I just can't see how they're relevant for the modern world. So much of what you're talking about there challenges the traditional way that learning in schools is conducted in much the same way because you are presupposing that this is a process which should be and could be available to all students not just those with a penchant for design creative not just for the art kids and not just for the for the design kids but for all kids how can we help people to understand that the immersion of a learner in this experience is available to everybody. Mm. So one of the things that I think, you know, that caused me to think like this was the, the school that I went to in London didn't have grades. It was a school where basically you go there, you spend a year of your life sort of torturing yourself <laughs> on these projects. And at the end, the merit is you presenting to a panel and they will fail or pass you. And that was it. And it meant that the stuff that you did was more on the basis of, you know, can you actually articulate what you're doing? Can you actually present what you're doing? How is it relevant to the world? And I felt like that really helped me guide my thinking that let's think a bit bigger, you know, let's not look at the micro of remembering this fact or ticking this box and all that. And that's the approach that I think that everyone should be having. I'm not saying that, you know, schooling is bad. I'm, I'm just saying that schooling should have more multiplicity and also more ways of actually thinking about education because we're just in a little, little sort of spectrum that we're looking at and we're just touching the surface of it. So I think that, you know, the current educational system is good for some things, you know, but I think there's so much more to actually look at. And to be honest, the only way to do that is to live life, <laughs> is to actually know things that, that, you know, and, you know, to actually understand how you're progressing through life and maybe questioning some things that you're doing and learning from it. There's so much of what you're saying here that, um, that resonates very strongly with the experience that we've had talking to game changers around the world, like yourself, um, and students and teachers and parents in learning communities. There's a personal connection here too, because my father studied um, architecture at what was then the, the London Polytechnic is, and is now the University of Westminster in London. Ah, and, nice. and, very, and, and I can, and in the 1950s and 1960s, and again, there was very much a, a pass-fail kind of thing around it and lots of Viva pre presentations and, and those sorts of things. What you're proposing here is a way of seeing assessment which doesn't rank students in terms of arbitrary factors so much as saying, can the person do the thing that's required? 
Do you think the world's ready to assess learners according to what they know, do, their dispositions and their learning habits in that pass-fail fashion? Or are we just addicted to A grades and B grades and those sorts of things? Well, well, Phil, it's already happening, right? Like life doesn't give you a grade. It doesn't give you a mark. It doesn't say you got 88. You know, we, we, we wander through life and it, we either did something or we didn't. <laughs> and we either proved it or we didn't. And the market or society and things chose that. So I reckon that education should be more holistic and rather than just looking at certain aspects of life, I think there should be a bigger image of how we actually critique things or how we actually view things. And there needs to be more of a balance as well. I'm very into the whole circular economy model, the donut model, as they call it, you know, rather than always increasing GDP at to what end, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's always that balance that when you look at life at a different viewpoint, you reveal a lot more different things. And right now, I think uh, we're at the precipice of it. I think we're so much more diversity, so much more inclusion is also happening. And I'm super excited about the future. <laughs> I think it's really interesting that you're sharing with our listeners that it's already happening. And, and Phil and I often talk about that the future's already here. We're just already late, mm. you know? Uh, and, 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 I, and I love the fact that you're sharing so much of your own personal journey because what I'm hearing is a restlessness, a restlessness about uh, around the construct of iteration, personal iteration as well as professional iteration, that with every experience that you have, whether it's in context, whether it's in a, in, in a classroom environment, whether it's an online context, if it's a conversation in a, in a social environment, it, whether it's in a foreign country or not, all those experiences create the sum of who Mond Q is. And I'm hearing you talk about your own iteration and your own growth to simply be better than you were yesterday. And it's incremental, but it's intentional even if it's not explicit in its intentionality, it's still intentional. Can you talk then about how has that process that you have given yourself permission to enter, how has that actually impacted upon your wellness? And how has it impacted upon the continual iteration of your own character? The, the, the funny thing is, is you're always learning. And as you progress, like you have this sort of mental capacity, but also a physical capacity. And you're learning not only about the world, but you're learning more about yourself. And the funny thing is, is that that constantly changes as well, because that reacts differently. Like my body is so different now that I'm 30 than I was 20, right? And that's a new variable that I have to put in that I'm constantly learning. Yeah, wait till, wait till he gets to 50, mate. Wait till he gets to 50. <laughs> But also these are the things that, you know, like what's actually happening in society, how we're communicating and what we're learning is that constant battle. I, I have this theory that, you know, right now, you know, as human beings, biologically, we are not evolved to be processing so much information by the amount of bombardment, we can't process it enough. And that's why I, I believe there's like a rise of more like anxiety, depression, all these mental health issues is because we haven't been taught how to deal with all this stuff, you know, professionally or, you know, privately. So in, in a way, I think we need to acknowledge that, you know, we actually need to acknowledge that as a society, that these are the things that, you know, we need to register and it's okay to be not okay. There, there, there's too many times I've seen that, you know, people push through 
but then not having that balance, right? Like, why are we sort of advocating for people because they're rich, <laughs> you know? Like, why are we advocating for that and putting them on a pedestal? Whereas like, why can't we put people that have a well-balanced life and have a really good family and stuff on a pedestal, right? So those are the things in, in my view that I'm constantly learning. And I'm also trying to find my North Star in a way. Okay. But the inclusion that I feel that I can include people is actually the, the best way to go about it and having that conversation. Yeah, you know, this is just brilliant, right? This is brilliant. I love listening to you, mate. And, and I love the questions that Phil has been posing to you. And what, what I'm also really appreciative of, and I'm sure our listeners are, is your willingness to give so much of yourself to this conversation, because that's where real learning happens, doesn't it? When we have this deep tuning in and, and a consciousness of where we're at at any given time. I mean, there's power in reflection. Uh, I, I also love that, that you're sharing with us that this journey is a fluid one and that we need to create learning communities that help young people for a change readiness construct mm. because this notion of a continuous learner unlearn has got to be at the heart of so much of what we're doing uh, because, because there is a fluidity to it and the, and, and the uncertainty is our kind of new normal and, and to wrestle in that space and be okay with wrestling in that space is, is, is going to be an important way forward. I want to shift the conversation for a moment, Mon, away from your own personal journey and mm. now to to the to the professional practice of designing yeah breaking free from the kind of restrictive nature of traditional classrooms many schools now are starting to develop learning environments often inspired by ideas of encounter of flow and of movement why is learning des environmental design such an important thing for young people and the adults in their lives to truly flourish so I feel very privileged that I've had the experience of going to Alaska in winter solstice at negative 40 degrees and actually hanging out with the Inuits and eating some whale. <laughs> ah, okay. I, I've, I've had the experience of going to Chernobyl, uh, where it's the atomic sort of sarcophagus, where it is a highly reactive nuclear area and seeing the people there and talking about their lives. And, you know, the things that we have to realize is that our globe is all connected, you know, like what's happening over in India means that, you know, we should be, you know, aware of it over here and that cities themselves are not just cities in a bubble, but, you know, we dig up all these other minerals from all around the world to actually create these things. Like the current screen that we're using to even freaking talk to each other is the accumulation of resources from around the world and these supply chains. And for me, we shouldn't be living under a rock. <laughs> we should be actually going out there and exploring it firsthand, that idea of first principles, that idea of actually understanding it for yourself rather than actually just reading something and then assuming it as gospel. So for me, in a way, this idea of environment, context, encounter is so important that it goes back to this idea of like, is your empathy work actually relevant? Is it actually something that you were on the field and you saw? Or is it something that you sort of read that's been like 100 years old? <laughs> it's, really, it's really interesting because this is the challenge, right, for learning communities. Often we're, we're the slowest to shift. We're the slowest to move in, in a world that is that disruption is kind of part of the vernacular. How do we help school leaders and educators better than understand what you're sharing with us and the power of encounter the power of flow and movement 
within the campus design, within the classroom design, within the curriculum design? So I think the first thing is to understand a level of trust and safety. Anytime you design a project that is different or a bit disruptive, you have to create a safe space. And it's the same thing when we start a design project. Sometimes there's egos at play, you know, people want to do their thing, they want to puff up their chest. And what I say is like, look, let's talk about the work, you know? Adriano, Phil, you and me, we're cool. Yeah, let's go have a beer after this, but let's interrogate the work. It's not about your idea or my idea. It's about coming together and discovering this journey together and creating that space together to allow everyone that's aware that these are the values and the things that we seek to achieve. So having that common ground. And those are the things that before any project or before any collaboration has to be set on the outset because things get messy, you know? when deadlines come, when things have to happen and things do fail, you know? But if you notify and say that we're gonna fail together and we can fail spectacularly together, at least we'll learn something. And these are the things that we want to achieve. At least we do it as a team. And one of the best pro quotes I sometimes like is like, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together, right? But just having that environment and that safety and the, the sort of same value proposition is really important. Mind, you have a reputation in the design world for, for pushing the frontiers of design through the intentional act of making, from deep materials research to visceral immersive experiences that we've heard some of them about so far. You create interactive artworks, modular furniture, large-scale projects. You've, you've alluded to being a polymath earlier, but actually I think what you are is a, a pioneer in the competencies that everyone's expected to have. You know, this is... This is, this is, we're entering the age of being generalists rather than specialists. You know, we're, we're hearing from Harvard University at the moment and from, from everywhere around the world, not just from the elite halls of ivory towers. Can you describe to our learners your learning process you undertake and in particular of the importance of reflection within that learning process? Uh, I, I have to admit, um, I am a student of Google YouTube, Reddit, you know, the, the internet. I am a school of the internet and they have taught me so much. <laughs> it's, it's the ability to learning how to learn or knowing how to find information that's relevant um, than actually sitting in your ass and be like, well, I didn't learn that, so I can't do it. And I think this idea that having so much knowledge at your fingertips, you have to be quite critical at what's the right one and what's the wrong one and also how to progress with that. I always keep a sort of journal at bay, uh, especially that sort of layers thing that I talked about at the beginning. So is our intention of what we set out achieved or how did we either not achieve it or did we do something differently and how can we make it better for the next process? And this idea of continuous improvement, I'm sure you guys have all heard of it, is always part of it, but on a micro and a macro scale. So in small habits that you, you sort of accumulate over time, but also broader, bigger ideas that also happen. And also these patterns that start to, to emerge. And one of the things that I always like to do is also question the methodology every single time when we sort of get comfortable because once you start getting comfortable and there's a dogma behind it i think that you sort of start you stop innovating you know you stop thinking about things differently and those are the things that i think once you get comfortable things slip into a habit that might actually stop you from actually doing something different or better 
And that's no. where you need more conversations and more people in the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's fascinating listening to you share so much about who you are as a person and who you are as a designer. Mm. And so you have actually so much work in the area of deep research and inquiry and in practice. And I know you mentioned before you teach internationally and of course you've taught at UniMelb as well. How then do you go down the line of helping school leaders around this construct of embracing a designer's mindset of innovation and iteration? But it's more than that what I'm hearing you today. What I'm hearing you talk about is that park the ego because it's about ecosystems. Mm. And that's got to be the focus. What I'm also hearing you talk about, it really, really um, heroing is thing, the part of this designer's mindset is deep listening, deep tuning in. A capacity to be highly inclusive, whose voices are missing, let's include them around the table. And then there's the, the construct of the designer's mindset around the iteration phase or innovation, which is about a deep questioning, more questioning than about answers before we get to, to, to hard conclusions. And there seems to be, a, for me, in, in everything you've shared with us today, a deep commitment to a human-centered approach, one that brings value to individuals and communities and groups. How do we then help school leaders see the intrinsic value in this designer's mindset being a path for real transformation in the communities they lead? Lead by example. Do it. All the times when I tell my students, if you want to prove something, you just got to do it. And if you do it, people will follow. Because, you know, I, I, I always have this idea that, you know, like people, when you put them in a context where they're safe, they, they start to, you know, have ideas and able to achieve. But also a lot of people are sheep, right? Like, you know, yeah. we're in a very like adaptable sheep mentality where, you know, they don't want to be the tall poppy. They don't want to be the person that sort of makes something different. But if you truly believe in something, we create a safe space where you can do that and you'll be rewarded for that rather than being cut down for it. And those are the things that if you want to see change, you got to be the change. You can't wait for it to come to you. Yeah, there's power in example, isn't there? You know, yeah. uh, I've often said that to executive teams. Uh, we always have to be the example, not the exception. Even, even the inertia of when there's a deadline due for a whole staff, let's get it in first. Let's, you know, let, let's set the tone uh, of the culture that we're trying to aspire to in, in a high performance uh, environment. I have one final question before I hand it over to Phil. And my question relates to the notion of a life of purpose, because you've shared so much uh, about what your purpose has been up to this point. I'm interested in knowing what is your life of purpose? <laughs> Not a deep question at all, Adriana. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I, I think for me, it's to really help people achieve their potential. And also, I guess, seeking out answers that are not always comfortable. I, I, I think that I am a bit of a sort of artist in the sense that I like to delve into topics and like to express myself a lot, but I like it when I'm doing it as a team. And that's where United Make came from. It's the fact that we always have to stick as a group to make things happen. And I'm trying to cultivate that culture and really make people join me on that journey that, you know, life's too short to, you know, do things that you don't like. <laughs> it's funny, you know, that pathway to self-determination ends up in interdependence, doesn't it? That's, that's often the biggest discovery. And that's what we find working within the team at the School for Tomorrow as well, and certainly working with our clients around there. I, I've got one last question before we, we, we wrap up. We talk about the notion of a life of purpose and, and that commitment to the notion of a purpose. 
And then we say, well, it's about a high performance approach to learning um, to complement it through your life. So you said that's, and that's the continuous improvement thing that mm. you were talking about earlier. What are your three tips for our listeners around how to foster a high performance learning culture for staff and students within a community of inquiry and practice? Habits. I think habits are a huge thing. Like everyone could have a vision. Everyone could have an idea, but having the strategy or the tactics to go there is something that is really important. Secondly is like, well, I think following from that is also having a vision, <laughs> having like a, like a clear focus of, you know, what problem is it really? Don't focus on the solution, focus on the problem. Because once the problem is in view, there's so many different types of solutions to actually get there. You know, if your solution, if you're too solution focused, you might design a fax machine, <laughs> right? And I guess thirdly is check in with yourself. And I think the third thing is just really understand yourself because you are different. You are unique in any, in every single way. And you shouldn't be competing with other people where it's their strength and not yours. So find out what you're good at, what you like, and then don't look at others. Ron, thank you so much for this conversation today. It's just been absolutely exquisite, really, to peer into the mind and to the heart of somebody who really, really cares about what they do, who has a very particular vision for the way in which they do it and very, very well-refined habits that allow the strategy and the tactics to come forward. Thank you for allowing us to check in with you. Thank you for having me. It's fascinating, Mon, because um, our, our, of course, series theme is flourishing future, designing for a better normal, and it would have been irresponsible mm. of us to not have a designer on. Adriano, I don't think we've finished with Mon. Shall we have another chat with him another time? I think it's absolutely necessary. I mean, we've just entered into, into the mind of, of, of a dynamic young individual that, that is intentional in so much that he does uh, and, and heroes diversity of environment, diversity of people, diversity of place, practice uh, at, at the heart and the centre of his being and, and, and his work. And, and the fact that his business is called United Make, there's the team creation concept there. And, and we're going to need another opportunity to sit down and have a conversation, uh, Mond, only if you're prepared for it. And you're not allowed to ask us questions, mate. We're the ones asking the questions. <laughs> <laughs> would, that, would that work for you, Mond? Would you like to come back and do that? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. let's go. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.